We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a strike? We care about the podcast. Do you care about the podcast? This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. We care about podcasting. Do you care about listening to the podcast? I sure hope so because you're here. And that means you're here uh, to listen to something that is usually reserved for patrons in the spotlight. Uh, if you've never been a patron and would like to be a patron, there's tons of in the spotlight episodes, including one we did on Olivier Giroud. You'll have to listen to find out what I thought of him. Um... That's a joke. Uh, we did one on Theo Walcott. There's lots of good ones there and lots of other good stuff there. But you know what? I realize it's a hard time for a lot of people. Um, and most important thing is that you're safe and well and healthy, that you're here with us right now. And that is greatly appreciated. I want to say again just how overwhelmed I am by the response to the um, fundraiser we did for the Arsenal Foundation. And I'll be putting out an article with some pictures and some results from how that went uh, overall. still going on. You can still contribute, but it's well over goal now. And it's just so exciting to see the reaction to that. So thank you for that. And this in the spotlight will be devoted to, as you can probably guess from the We Care, do you hint Stan Kroenke or more specifically Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, the owners of Arsenal. And uh, we will be discussing with Tim, Clive, and Paul uh, what makes a good owner. Is KSE a good owner? Have they been a good owner? Um, no spoilers. You know, what the future could hold with, with KSE as an owner and, and what they'd like to see different. But I want to start with something that I think is really helpful to lay the framework for that conversation. And that's kind of understanding financially the state the club was in when Kroenke first came in, um, what KSE represented as an owner taking over from the previous owners. And then with this pandemic and with the economic fallout, how that may 
have ramifications for KSE as an ownership group and whether that could impair uh, their ability to operate Arsenal successfully and maybe even potentially lead to a sale. And to analyze all that, we need someone who understands the numbers, the finances, and that is why I'm here. No, I'm kidding. Clearly, I don't understand that, which is why Matt is here. And you can find Matt at Giant Gooner on Twitter. Hello, Matt. How are you? Good. Yeah, just the two minutes of me speaking without introducing you. Uh, tr- typical professional hosting job by myself. So, Matt, first, um, I certainly don't need you to list off your bona fides, but I think it's it's safe to just say that you have made a career in the uh, sort of corporate finance world. You have done some podcasting with us in the past to give us background on these kinds of details. And so safe to say uh, we, we've called on the right person, but is there anything you sort of want to add about how you, what, what you bring to this analysis before we get started? Sure, of course. I bring, you know, a Bloomberg terminal and a knowledge of finance. <laughs> Good <laughs> enough. Aside. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have either of those <laughs> and, things. And a few hours of research on the subject. <laughs> Great. Um, all right, so well, let's dive in. So the, the thing that I think is sometimes conflated, maybe conflated, and you, you can unpick this for us, unpack it for us, is that, you know, after Kroenke took over, there was this period where we didn't do a lot of buying, we did quite a bit of selling, Project Youth was underway, um, sort of during, before and during, and then after he took over. And I, I think there was a concern that there was some parsimony on the ownership side that, that was going to hold Arsenal back, but you can't really analyze that and the takeover by Kroenke without going back and analyzing the stadium deal. And so before we even get into KSE buying the club, was the original sin of that sort of that period for Arsenal and the challenges that, that the club faced, the way in which the stadium was financed, the transaction by which Arsenal uh, uh, built the Emirates, and how much, how much blame should be apportioned to the previous owners for the way they went about it? I mean, was there a better way they could have and should have done it? I think it's when you look back at the construction of the Emirates Stadium, it is almost one of a kind in terms of the way that a group of owners who, let's face it, didn't have the money that was needed to build a stadium like that, leveraged up the club through various instruments, synthetic instruments and otherwise, and we'll discuss that, uh, and simply refused to put in a penny of their own money or bring in outside money to help them get this stadium built. And I, I you know, there's a lot of criticism that comes to them from the later decision to sell this club to Stan Kroenke. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll discuss it a little, and I'm sure the guys will have a, a more extensive conversation about it in the Indeed. second segment. <laughs> <laughs> but the decision, the decision to build this stadium without taking an any kind of outside money was a real betrayal of Arsenal supporters because their future, you know, their, their stadium, their, their, their ticket, ticket dollars were basically spent in advance on building the stadium and then paid back in the form of a really large, really onerous piece of debt um, in the form of the construction loan that was done for this, as well as the synthetic debt in the form of the long-term sponsorship agreement with Nike and Emirates, that it's not legally debt, but it provided a significant portion of the cash to build the stadium, and it held the club back commercially for a decade. And that's a decade that every one of us has memories of in terms of the teams that were so close and almost there. And the difference between almost there and there was the decision to do a deal with Stan Kroenke eight years later than it should have been done. Yeah, and and so, I mean, at a 
period of really explosive global growth for the Premier League and marketability of Premier League teams, and certainly at a period where Arsenal was still considered to be one of the two or three premier names in, in Premier League football, uh, if you'll forgive the pun, um, we lacked the ability to leverage that into improving commercial deals because we were locked into them to help finance the stadium. I mean, am I understanding that correctly? I think that's exactly right. So you go back to when Emirates Stadium, the process for permitting and building Emirates Stadium begins in 1999 uh, when Arsenal commissioned a feasibility study for the project, end of 1999. So really this was 2000, it was the, the period of 2000 through 2004. Now this was a period that of course, you know, starts off with uh, the dot-com crash and 9-11, and then over the years following sees a really strong recovery and the formation of what became, you know, a huge bull market and credit and development. Um, the club acquired the raw land uh, and um, and did the permitting in 2000, but they actually got the loan um, – they actually got the loan around 2003, 2000, 2003 to 2004. Mm, interesting. And that's the time when they needed to what, – what they did to fund this stadium, they took out a £260 million loan, 30 years with a series of incredibly onerous terms. You know, this inability – these prepayment penalties that still mean so that – this is uh, you know, this is well above market interest rates, but the club is unable to prepay those loans without paying off the net present value of the difference between the interest rates on the loan and gilts, which means risk-free UK bonds. Like hmm. that's an incredibly punitive structure, being forced to pay it back like you're a government entity. Um, the you know, a two hundred sixty million pound loan. Over a 30-year basis, you know, that doesn't sound that large in the context of Arsenal's finances. But then on top of that was the £150 million uh, transaction with Emirates and Nike, uh, which we discussed the degree to which that held back. You know, we were we were well under half of market rates for our shirt deal and our uh, and our kit deal, um, sponsor, shirt sponsorship and the kit sponsorship mm. for the last few years of that deal as things exploded. What you normally do when you're trying to do a you know a 400 million pound construction project is you finance you know probably 20 odd percent of that in the form of an equity check from the owners. So it should have been like 80 million pounds. Now they had made a sale of five percent. A five percent stake in Arsenal had been sold to a media group, Granada, uh, for 47 million pounds in uh, the fall of 2000. So if they really needed to put up 20% in equity, they needed to sell a 10% stake in the club. They didn't need to sell the whole club. They needed to welcome somebody to the table, and not in the form of selling their old shares, but in issuing new shares to dilute their stake. And they refused to do that. So let, let me just let, can I just restate that because there's been a lot of sort of dense finance terms thrown in there, and this is a really important point that I want to uh, call out. They could have made the financing of building a new stadium, much less painful long-term for the club, much less onerous uh, in terms of how resources could be spent on improving the team on the on the pitch, much less burdensome for the ticket holders. Had they merely diluted themselves, meaning take away a little bit of what they own, make it slightly less valuable by bringing in another investor, raising the money they need that way, rather than doing it through this onerous and, and punitive debt structure, 
but they didn't. And is it fair to characterize that nakedly, absent additional information, as greed? Plain and simple. That's how I look at it. It was it was greed and hubris, the belief that they could just make this happen all on their own and they didn't need somebody else. And it, en- it ended up being that they threw an incredibly long-term millstone around the club's neck, one that's, you know, one that took 10 years to clear in the case of the, uh, in the, case of the kit deal and the shirt deal, and one that's going to take 30 years to clear in the form of the stadium debt. Um, and if they had done the right thing and raised 20% of that money from a raised 20% of that money from a new investor, which probably would have been Stan Kroenke at the end of the day, they ended up, it was only three, four years later, it was April, 2007 that the, uh, that red and white securities that, sorry, that, uh, that you had the first, you had the first, uh, involvement of Stan Kroenke in the company, uh, in our, in Arsenal holdings, uh, when he bought David Dean's stock in August of 07. Mm. Um, and then you saw the uh, the remaining directors uh, sold out their position in November of 2009. Right. Um, it was only a few years later that they would end up selling their entire interests. So they went from, we won't accept a penny of dilution in the form of new share issuance to, oh, we'll sell our entire position in a five-year period. And, and, that and what changed? Always <laughs> Just <badly>. the price? <laughs> <laughs> Some combination of the price, and admittedly, November 2009, there may have been one or two things going on in the, in the world around then. Mm. Um, <laughs> but even so, uh, yeah. I think it really is. Well, financial it's, crisis it's will, will change people's perception of things. But I, yeah, and look, I mean, it's one thing to sell when you're selling to dilute and use the capital you raise to fund a stadium. It's another thing when it's going in your pocket. So, I mean, you know, I, I, just, I, I just don't I, like... Because we're going to talk a lot about Stan Kroenke and KSE, and there's going to be a lot of negative things to discuss with that. But he was buying into a club that was saddled with really poorly structured debt associated with that stadium decision. So is, is it fair to say that at the time that uh, Stan and Usmanov came in, um, there wasn't a lot they could do about that debt position? I mean, or, or is that unfair? Now, one thing I think I'm aware of, and I could be wrong about this, is that there's sort of a safe harbor... Um, with respect to maybe FFP or some of the financial rules that when you buy a club, you can put money in, but that's only when you take full ownership, right? So he would not have been able to do that when he acquired his partial stake early on, or am I misstating that probably in many ways? Well, for first of all, there wasn't such a thing as FFP back oh, then right. yeah, of course. when he acquired so his first stake. Uh, so it, was, it wasn't related to that. Um, there's been a couple comments in the press that um, that, have, that have leaked out post the... Uh, the Usmanov sale and Kroenke taking 100% ownership. Um, that uh, that KSE felt that they there were actions they couldn't take on a de facto basis because they were only a shareholder rather than the 100% owner. And I've always thought that's a bit silly because legally they could have done whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you own 50 plus 50% plus one share of a UK company, the power of minority shareholders to stop you from doing what you want is very limited, which is not the case in all countries. Um, but if they felt that they were constrained because they didn't, they really wanted to get to hundred percent and they didn't want to do something that made the shares more valuable and helped Alisher Usmanov, I, I, I can understand how tactically they felt that way. Um, but then we still haven't seen them do much since they've taken 100% okay. ownership. So that's, that gets complicated too. Okay, so, so we'll get to that. So, so let's go back just a bit. Um, and we won't do this forever because obviously we've got the full panel coming up. But, but so 
The stadium thing is done. The club is saddled with the debt. It's not structured particularly well. Here comes KSC. They buy in. They become the majority shareholder over a period of time. At the time they buy, buy those shares and become the majority shareholder, is it fair to say that the prior owners were not properly capitalized, did not have the resources to own a club the size of Arsenal, and that in general, selling to someone like KSE was in the interest of Arsenal long term? And to what extent was KSE the, really the right, the right buyer for that? So I would argue that by the time they made the sale to Kroenke in 2009, it didn't really matter. The, the 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 cake was baked in terms of the stadium. And once you went past there, then the question becomes, does a club the size of Arsenal need an owner who is going to inject cash, whether it be every year or semi-regularly, to make the club more competitive? Um, <laughs> if you wanted to sell to someone who was going to do that, then they sold to the wrong person when they picked KSE, because KSE has not made any equity investments or debt investments in the club other than the purchase of incremental shares that I'm aware of since they took ownership of Arsenal. Could KSE uh, have done change. anything about the loan or would it have triggered those those sort of prepayment clauses? I mean, could they have could they have taken on a, a personal guarantee or anything like that to, to change the terms of the loan or was that pretty restrictive? Well, that's actually the thing that's been alluded to since they took on 100% ownership is that there is a portion of cash on the Arsenal balance sheet that's restricted cash in a debt service reserve account. Um, the obvious place where there's an ability for KSC to provide financial support to Arsenal, Arsenal without spending actual money is to provide that guarantee that would eliminate the need for that debt service reserve. And that would free up uh, without actually having the financials open in front of me, which I probably should, um, it would free up about 40 million pounds of cash. Uh, I'll tweet out the exact number uh, after we're done here. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll look for that. <laughs> <laughs> but So that's one thing they could do. And there have been a number of suggestions that they might do that at some point in the future. There was even a reference to it recently in the period when uh, we saw this pay, we saw the, the squad accept wage cuts. Um, there was a reference that KSC was not going to put money directly into the club, but that it was going to provide some form, some form of indirect financial support. And my pretty strong guess is that that is when we see the next set of accounts, we'll see that KSC has provided a guarantee that eliminates the need for the debt service reserve on the balance sheet. Okay, so here's here's where I think most lay people who follow Arsenal live when it comes to ownership and the ownership economic responsibility to the club buy all the players, right? That's that's what most of us think of. If we buy all the players, owner good. If we don't buy all the players, owner bad. So setting aside just splashing the cash, because I think you could actually make an argument that we have splashed quite a bit of cash, just not particularly well. Are there things that sort of economically, financially speaking, apart from just buying players, that KSE could have done and should have done in your mind that a quote-unquote good owner, a, a a good custodian of the club would have taken the opportunity to do in those in those early stages of ownership aside from just buy all the players. There's a huge number of fascinating things that you can do on the business side of club ownership that you see the smartest club owners doing that you really have seen. You've seen half-hearted efforts from KSC, but you haven't seen full out. You look at um, anything from the Red Bull group to City Football group to the Pozzo group. The cleverest people in football right now appear to be trying to own multiple clubs and trying to use them. They're doing loan arrangements. They're trying to find 
clearer pipelines to young undervalued talent in a in emerging in emerging economies or even just you know frankly you know the US has been one of them Borussia Dortmund's done it really well recently post Sven Mis- post Sven actually um, you haven't seen many creative ideas coming out of KSC these people own clubs in five different major sports at least uh, and yet what's been and there's occasional references to them trying to generate interesting ideas there was talk just this week or last week that uh, that Mikel Arteta had done a Zoom call with Sean McVay over uh, the head coach of the LA Rams mm. um, the idea that you can be an organization the size of KSC in terms of its scale of investment in sports and not be doing that many things to try to operate your club differently than the bog standard club. I mean, we saw them purchase stat DNA, uh, and then that sort of died. You know, I mean, it's, it's not dead. We know that the principal Jason Rosenfeld only left the club a few weeks ago and his assistant Sarah Rudd is still there. They, the club by all accounts have a really strong data practice, but the ability to apply it in ways that seem to be differentiated have seemed really limited. As compared to maybe um, like a, a Liverpool thing. Because that was one thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, I, I, in my mind, I analogize the KSE model and the FSG model, and, and I draw a line between them. And, and certainly FSG have made a lot of mistakes. It's not like it just rocked up and suddenly had the best team in England. But do you see things that maybe like an FSG is doing that you would, would distinguish them from the way KS, KSE operates, aside from just like being smarter? Well, but it, being smarter becomes becomes a question of how do you manage your club? Who manages the club? Who do you put in charge? And managing the club doesn't just mean the manager on the pitch. It means the management on the executive side. And, you know, what's KSE done? They started off by just showing 100% faith in Arsene Wenger. And, you know, I, I, I quite like Arsene Wenger, but he was, he was allowed to hold an unusual amount of power for an extremely long time. And then when he left, ultimately, it's tough to look at a situation where originally the keys were given to Ivan Gazidis with Raul Sanyehi and Sven Mislintat working beneath him. Six months later, Gazidis was gone, and it was Sanyehi and uh, and Mislintat. Six months later, Mislintat is gone, and now we've got Raul Sanyehi doing some agent-led recruitment structure. And it's tough to look at the period where, as KSC has become increasingly influential in putting its fingerprints on the club, its fingerprints look like a mess. You know, mm. it's been a period of, of constant upheaval in the front office and a strategy that's, I mean, you know, listen, we have to give them time. They've they should be given more rope to hang themselves with, but so far a strategy that hasn't looked terribly coherent and organized. So it's it's frustrating. Well, the rope that may hang them could be this pandemic, um, and that's going to be true for a lot of businesses. But that that leads to sort of I think the crux of the last portion of our conversation, Matt, which is simply we know some of the the mistakes and the flaws and the errors that were made before. KSC came on to the scene and we know some of the mistakes and errors and flaws that were made by KSC since coming onto the scene. But in terms of the future, that gets a little murkier. Certainly the future of football itself is murky. Certainly the future of the league, the potential for a European Super League, all of those things are open questions. But I think with respect to ownership, how exposed are KSC to the economic fallout of the pandemic? And to what extent, if any, could that impair the way they're able to operate Arsenal or even potentially maintain ownership of Arsenal? How do you see 
KSE being positioned uh, when the smoke clears on this, if if it ever does? It's going to be really complicated. You know, we're in a world right now where there's a huge divergence. You know, the the stock markets, for example, aren't down that much. You know, on a headline basis over the last year, the stock market is flat, the S&P 500. But under that flat, you've seen tech businesses surge in value and you've seen entertainment and energy and certain other businesses get absolutely killed. You look at the exposures that KSE has or that the Kronke family overall has, and it's much more tilted toward the bad side of things, particularly the stuff that's in the name of Stan Kronke. So Stan Kroenke, according to Bloomberg's billionaire's work, uh, has about $8.4 billion of net worth. Um, all of this is a little, you know, it's tricky because his his finances are highly private. And uh, so there's a lot of details that nobody has, the Bloomberg folks included. But you look at what he has on his list. Uh, $2.3 billion is the value of Arsenal based on the, the transaction, the, the price he paid to buy out Usmanov. Uh, the Rams are valued at $2.3 billion. But the Rams, normally it's impossible to lose money on an NFL team. These things are like licenses to print money. Uh, but the Rams have the problem of building a new stadium in Los Angeles, where you've seen major cost overruns. And now they're in the middle of spending billions on a stadium in a period when nobody is capable of going inside said newly opened stadium. So <laughs> that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Now, you've got the Denver Nuggets, which are worth a billion and a half dollars, but the NBA, more than any of the big North American professional leagues, is heavily reliant on gate revenue. Um, the NBA is going to be hurting. Um, and so the Nuggets will be hurting in terms of their, their value. The other two sets of assets that he has are retail real estate and ranches. Um, the retail real estate is mostly strip malls. Um, I don't know the the sort of the English vernacular, the UK vernacular, uh, but in the US, these are these are downscale shopping centers. Uh, the KSC portfolio is heavily concentrated in the Midwestern United States, away from sort of the more prosperous coasts, uh, and they tend to have centers that are anchored by WalMarts. Now that's good news within the world of retail real estate, which is approximately speaking a catastrophe you look at um you look at publicly traded companies that are in the same business strip centers uh they're almost all down 50 percent since covid started um and these are also entities that are supposed to spit out steady dividends uh they've all canceled their dividends because the public companies that do business comparable to what ksc's or Kronke's portfolio uh retail or retail real estate portfolio does they're dealing with like 60% of their tenants paying rent. Mm. So of course they can't, you know, they don't have extra cash to put to their shareholders, which of course means that one of the two regular sources of monthly cash flow showing up in the Kronke family accounts is not showing up. Um, now the other asset is the ranches. Uh, it's tough for me to tell. I don't know what the big Kronke real estate position, ranching position is uh, exactly like how much of it is used for commercial ranching rather than just being luxury property. Uh, but if they're selling meat, you know, ranching meat and selling meat, that business has been hugely disrupted by both the COVID impact on the meatpacking industry here, which has been a, a real humanitarian catastrophe, um, but also the disruption to people's eating habits, not eating out so much, mm. the, the problems that restaurants have been having. So his two more normal businesses 
are both sucking eggs right now and not in the position to spit out the kind of steady cash flow he might have expected that he could pump into his sports teams. Now, those assets are worth an aggregate of $8.4 billion before they get downgraded in value due to, due to COVID. Um, the good news is that his wife, Anne Kroenke Walton, um, uh, is the heiress of approximately 20 million shares of Walmart stores, the sort of low-budget superstore that is the single largest retailer in the United States. Walmart sells basic goods at low prices to people, and it's thriving. Uh, Walmart stock is up 10% since the COVID disruption started. People are going to Walmart, obviously. So they own $5 billion worth of Walmart shares, and that's that's increased in value. And their Walmart position pays out a pretty steady quarterly dividend that's about, uh, oh, let's see, versus a $5 billion position. Uh, They get about... $80 $80 million every three months uh, in the form of Walmart dividends. So I mean, after tax, maybe $60 take million. It. You'll take it. If you have to, you'll take it. By the way, I'm going to use yeah, this segment yeah. oh. uh, for my, when I send in my uh, audition reel for, for Bloomberg News Network because um, <laughs> yeah, I'm killing it right now. So, so as you paint this whole picture, I mean, because I, I have to admit, I'm starting to reach eyes glazing over phase. Um, is, <laughs> is it fair to say, I mean, look, on on the Walton side of the family, his wife, th- that's going to be fine. But, you know, just because you're married to someone whose last name is Walton doesn't mean you have access to all those resources and can use them to fund your sports business. KSC has a responsibility as, a, as an entity to be able to operate based on what it has, I presume, and you know, what its assets are and what its revenues and access to cash are and debt positions, things like that. So do you see... I, I think the only thing our listeners care about, those that are left... Um, is do you see this having an impact on KSC that could do one of two things? Either change the way they operate Arsenal or cause them to consider exiting Arsenal, their ownership position from Arsenal. So in the first, change the way they operate Arsenal. I don't think it should change the way they operated Arsenal over the years. I think that they should have enough cash resources and enough just access to capital because they have a lot of different businesses and a lot of banks that dearly love to do business with people who are that rich and <laughs> have that kind of diversity of asset base. Um, that they're not they're not going to they're not going to struggle for access to capital in the short run. So they don't need to like loot Arsenal to get money out of the club, right? But equally, they can't put money in. Uh, legitimately, if they're doing sixty million bucks a quarter of cash flow from their wall from the the after tax Walmart dividends, and they're not getting cash flow from the real estate business, and they might even have to be sticking cash into the real estate business, and they do need to stick cash into the Rams, they'll have a significant reserve because the NFL is really conservative on that sort of stuff. But the Rams are ultimately a massive cash drain at this point in time. The idea that KSC should be investing countercyclically into Arsenal isn't going to happen. These people are hurting. Like within the worlds of billionaires, like their hurting is not the same as your hurting and my hurting. There's no risk of food showing up on the table. But they have taken large paper losses. A lot of their businesses are in bad shape. Pretty much all of them are, except for the passive Walmart position. And I'm not optimistic that there is a white knight riding in on that horse off the ranch to help us out. Mm. So As what about a white knight sell? riding in to t- take the club off his hands? <laughs> That's a fascinating question. I've long felt that KSE 
the Kroenke family overall has too much of its wealth exposed to cable TV, for want of a better word, because that's a huge source of, you know, the, the, the way that sports fans of every stripe, be they match going fans or fans who watch on TV, have been having their pockets raided harder and harder by ownership, media companies, you name it. KS, the Kroenke family is overexposed to that dynamic. And I've long felt that they would be smart to sell an asset. They obviously don't agree with me. They're just buying more stuff. So they feel that's risk they're comfortable with. I don't think they have to, though there's a lot of non-public information that if they have more debt than I think, they could – it is not out of the question that they could be forced to sell an asset, put it that way. Um, especially if we end up in – the one of the worst outcomes here in, in, in COVID. You know, we're sitting here in the middle of May and God help me if I have a clue what the world's going to look like 12 months from now, right? If it's, if it's one of those scenarios where we don't get a vaccine and we don't get good treatments and people are really struggling to go out in person, it wouldn't shock me if this time next year there was pressure on KSE to sell an asset. Hmm. And the obvious asset to sell is Arsenal. They're Americans. They're very American-Americans. I don't think Arsenal has the pull on their heartstrings that the domestic assets do. This is you, just you'd a You'd never know it. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's, put it this way, this is a lot more on the table now than it would have been six months ago. That's really my take interesting. on it. Really interesting. And so just as a final quick uh, coda to this, because it's a conversation we had on the pod previously, um, KSE did sort of take the strong PR position they had when Really, the the pandemic was at the absolute fever pitch in terms of fear and uncertainty, uh, and and got a deal out of their players to claw back some wages. Did you have a, a position on that in terms of whether the timing of that was suspect and purely leveraging PR, whether it was the right thing for KSE to do, whether it was fair thing for them to do under those circumstances? I mean, do you have sort of a, a financial um, take on on their decision to do that? So, I mean, the reality is that. Arsenal and every other club in the Premier League are suffering a major decline in revenue. In the North American sports where you see collective bargaining between the players in the leagues, or it varies by sport actually, but particularly in the NBA where the salary cap is a percentage of revenue, you're dealing with a situation where there's alignment, where the incredibly the incredibly rich players and the even more incredibly rich owners are both seeing the salary cap decline and the, the two sides need to figure things out together. I think it makes sense that when you've got a group of rich and richer, that both sides should share the discomfort of a situation like this, and that more of the discomfort should fall upon richer, the owner, rather than just rich, the players. So I thought that the deal that was struck sort of, I mean, you know, based on the public information that all of us were given, it sort of looked like a bit of a I'm looking for the right word here it was kind of a fake leaf like it was a it was a 10% on average cut for a couple months like it wasn't real money it just was a that's why it was so it suspect was so that everyone could say they it, were working yeah, together it, it's not a it's not a a band-aid in any way on any of the economic impairments to the club or or to KSC generally yeah it's just kicking the can down the road yeah. um so like whatever I, okay. uh, my take on it was whatever. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, that's a really, really excellent foundation to lay for the conversation that's going to come next because I think it gives us an idea of sort of like the environment by which Kroenke arrived to the club and in terms of what the previous owners had saddled the club with in terms of debt and 
and limitation in, in the way it could operate in terms of missed opportunities from KSE and what they could have done to be more creative earlier in their ownership. And now in terms of the possible threat that COVID poses to KSE and, and their ability to maintain their hold on Arsenal long-term if they if they have to make some tough decisions. So, Matt, I really do appreciate it. And while I will acknowledge that there were times when you uh, talked at a level that is certainly over my head, although based on my stature, that is not the most difficult thing to do, um, it, it was it was illuminating, and I appreciate it. And it, it is the perfect framework for the conversation to follow with the, with the gang. So Matt is on Twitter at Giant Gooner, and I, I just really appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll shove all of this... Uh, well-informed, reasonable discussion aside and get with the hysterical overreactions. After this, stay with us. got all the useful detail and information out of the way we can get on to the random opinion making and that's what we do best and we do it best with our regular panel of experts you can find paul on twitter at pause no my pants hello pause Woo-hoo. you can find tim on twitter at stoberto hello tim hello there and you can find clive on twitter at clive pafc hello clive hello 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 indeed yeah so look we, we now we got the the really good in-depth information about stan Kroenke and kse out of the way and that means now we can just waffle about him. Hey, he sucks. We hate him. Boo, boo that guy. Actually, no. We're going to hopefully have a conversation that's a little more nuanced than that. But I do think it is important to sort of start at the beginning. And uh, Tim and Clive, I'm, I'm sort of particularly interested in your perspective on this first issue. Not that I'm not particularly interested in your perspective, Paul, at all times. But Tim, you know, going back, obviously, Arsenal has been in your life a lot longer than it has been in mine. And I don't connect with it locally. And so... You know, the previous owners, whatever you want to say about them, and we can maybe have a little word about them as part of the transition to talking about Stan, but there Hmm. was a sense of maybe local connection to the club, and selling to Stan was the removal of that, the coming in of of a foreign entity, of a a group of people that see the club as an asset in a portfolio. So, I mean, before you really knew anything about KSE and Stan Kroenke and what life would be like under Kroenke... Did you feel betrayed by the previous owners? Were you dismayed at Stan coming in as an owner? And I'm not talking about the full ownership that just happened, but the initial mm. stage of buying in, uh, you know, along with Usmanov. I mean, how did you feel about the move from Arsenal being sort of this locally owned team to being part of a, a portfolio of assets? So I, I wasn't hostile towards uh, the idea of Stan um, owning the club. There are a few reasons for this. First, um, I'm in that minority of supporters who didn't believe that David Dean shit doesn't stink. Um, I think there were there were he did a lot of good for Arsenal. Don't get me wrong, and his relationship with Wenger as well was hugely effective. I don't think he was a very good businessman. I think he made a lot of poor choices in his business career, um, which were kind of um, salvaged by quieter members of that board who I think were a bit more important for Arsenal. People like Danny Fisman, um, who who didn't have the profile, but I thought was was uh, he, I regarded him as 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 the true custodian really. Um, but obviously he was he was on his deathbed um, literally uh, when when the, you know the documentation was signed over to KSE. David Dean had dragged us into this situation where there was a standoff between Usmanov and Kroenke, which when you stop and think about is fucking extraordinary. Like he bought two like billionaires onto the board without 
or into the club without telling anyone else on the board and without telling either of them either. So when you think about the enormous mess he created, it, it's quite incredible he's come out of this with his reputation intact because he, you know, that that whole standoff between Ismanop and Kroenke has defined a decade for Arsenal and, and it's his fault. Um, and, and if you're like, a director on a board and someone does that like you'd be thinking what the fuck are you doing like what is wrong with you um and and so and so there was that element to it i, I wasn't as enamored with david dean as other people as much as i recognized i, I liked what he did with wenger and in the transfer market and everything and and also to be honest um you know there was this whole like will it be as will it be cronky um thing and I kind of viewed Stan as the lesser of two evils. Uh, that's certainly how I viewed it in 2007. Would I have viewed it that way maybe 10 years later? Don't know. Um, Was that a human rights-based issue or something else? Uh, yeah, 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 a little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I, yeah. We're yeah, not, we're not going like, to have the are all billionaires human rights violators no, conversation. No, no, that's no, just no. not point happening. Yeah. No, exactly. And also, um, I'd... You know, yeah, I, I won't get into the Ismanov thing too much because he's litigious. Yeah, he's got lawyers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, so I, I kind of viewed it. And, you know, it was down to uh, a very precious situation for Danny Fisman. He knew he was dying and he had a choice between these two guys. And I respected his decision and his opinion. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of regarded it as the lesser of two evils. I didn't really know much about Stan Kroenke, so I was, I was pretty open-minded about it. But... Um, you know, just to, to close this point, really, I kind of sensed that that was coming because it had happened to Manchester United and Manchester United are the bellwether for English football. If you look at what Manchester United are doing now, it's what everyone's doing 10 years down the line, basically. Mm. Um, and so as soon as the Glazers bought into Manchester United, I thought, OK, this is going to happen. You know, this sort of thing is going to happen to everyone soon enough. So I guess I was a little bit sanguine about it. I, you know, I, the the kind of local connection thing. Yeah, it it wasn't. You know, I I like the fact that Dean and Fisman were Arsenal fans, and they absolutely were um, from youth demonstratively. Um, but you know, the Hillwoods and Bracewell Smith. You know, it's it's kind of it's quite an attractive story, really, that we always had these kind of you know, quite almost comically stuffy Etonians um, in the boardroom. Um, but, but you know, that that was never going to last forever, um, frankly. So I, I, I was open-minded at the time, to be honest. I mean, and just, I, I, yeah, I, I, I viewed him as preferable to Ismanov. Yeah, and, and just point blank, they did not have the resources to own a club the size of Arsenal in the changing environment. Like, it would not, that would not have worked, I, I don't think, long-term. No. But, but setting that aside, I mean, Clive, did you... Did you feel any pangs of regret about that ownership group sort of being swept aside for the global conglomerate model? I mean, were you were you a believer that they were better custodians for the club? Did you have any opinion of, of that change at the time? At my time, my views were quite narrow. I can remember standing in Cardiff watching, very drunk, watching <laughs> Arsenal, I thought, dominate Manchester United in 2005 FA Cup final. I was that drunk. And basically, we were shouting USA, USA to them all the time because the Glazers had just come in, their club was in a bit of turmoil, and we just couldn't imagine something like that happening to us. <laughs> Lo and behold, a few years later, this was, you know, this sort of thing happened. And I think, I think what, what Dean tried to do was absolutely the right thing to do. 
we had to progress the club on from being owned by millionaires to basically owned by billionaires. Because that's where the game was going. The TV deals were going upward. The overseas deals were going upward. There was a trend developing. And Arsenal had to be on that bandwagon. And um, But the problem is, as Tim alluded to, is, is how it happened. It felt to me at the time that it almost, rather than do it in a, in a collective and collaborative way, we sort of mess it up completely and almost had it done to us. And then it cost people jobs, it cost people, it caused risks in our own board, it caused people to pick sides, and that was just the wrong way to do it. you know. And So at the time, my, my narrow view was, I don't like asking the papers this sort of stuff, and on the back of this, are we going to get you semi midfielder? You know, that, that's where I was at the time. Because that's what, that's what most fans think about. They look at the owner, look at them, look at the Forbes rich list and think, well, I want some of that to go into our midfield, into our strike force. Because I remember when Chelsea did what they did, I remember thinking they'll never be as big as us, whatever they do. And lo and behold, you know, their, their revenues are bigger than us today. And they've got a 10-year, 12-year history of winning every trophy in the game. And at that time, I just could not imagine that happening. I just felt that the old team would always be in position of power, but it's so improved and not been the case. So I had no strong views on Usmanov or Kroenke. It wouldn't have bothered me which way, as long as we decided to move forward in a positive way, which got us into a position where Arsenal were always deemed to be a super club. Because I've always felt we are moving towards a super league. And that was my only big worry was I wanted Arsenal to be a place that people wanted to come. I wanted Arsenal to be as big as, as they should be. And historically, they are the third biggest club in this land based on history, based on titles won, etc. And I felt that was under threat and that needed to, we needed to act, we needed to react to the fact that Chelsea had parked some tanks on our lawn and firing £50 notes at us. That, to me, I was hoping this was our way of reacting to that. But we sort of messed it up, and we sort of messed it up, and we paid the price. And and Tim's absolutely right. You, if you think about the from 2011 to 2018-19, which one when Kroenke got sole ownership, we literally we literally sat on our hands with the two billionaires on the board, and we didn't actually progress the cup. We just basically painted the windows. That's what we did, and, yeah. and it's a shame. Yeah, and I mean, we can kind of get into why that happened, and and how much of that is is. Stan's fault, and certainly that'll be a topic coming up. But let me ask you this, Paul. I mean, before we get into the specifics of why Stan bad or why Stan not bad, what should you want in an owner? I think this is the really challenging thing for current football fans as you know, Newcastle cheers the arrival of the sovereign wealth fund from Saudi Arabia. Like, I, I don't really know how you describe the perfect owner that would make fans happy other than we win titles, fan like titles, me want titles. Like, because, I mean, the the FSG model that Liverpool fans must love right now is essentially the KSE model. We, we can get back into that in a bit. Um, you know, the, the Abramovich model, the Sheikh Mansour model, like they're, they're all e- fall into one of two things, right? Which is either billionaire conglomerates that own lots of sports franchises as assets or billionaire individuals that that own them as playthings or billionaire soft power extensions of of regimes that are looking to to launder their reputations like <laughs> i don't you know other than that you've got basically small local business people who can't compete so i mean paul how do you define the kind of ownership 
that would make a fan happy. And, and you know, does Stan fall into that category? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a really good question because I spent a bit of time looking at it, and there are there's no perfect owners anymore. And you you've laid it out there. You got your oligarchs and shakes on one side, and you either do or don't have a problem with that. Well, I do, um, and it's not who I want owning my club. But not everybody feels the same way as kind of Clive outlined there. But for me, that's a problem and that's an issue. <clears throat> your your club is being used. Uh, for for some form of whitewashing of your reputation. And you can get as emotive as you like in terms of terms like blood money, but, you know, you, you, we all got to decide what we're comfortable with. So that the, you have those clubs, and there's a few of them, and they're growing in the league. Um, and as the opportunity for Super League status is dangled, uh, you have your Saudi Arabias buying uh, Newcastle United or whatever. Um, you've four or five clubs that are owned by basically the same kind of U.S. billionaire model, uh, Fenway, KSE, etc., and some execute better than others. Um, you have uh, foreign conglomerates. There's a couple of Chinese uh, conglomerates owning clubs in the Premier League. Um, and you, as you laid out, you have your Delia Smiths, uh, backed by a couple of millionaires or whatever, owning the smaller clubs. And the one really interesting story in all of that, the one, as I go through the Premier League clubs, I'm thinking, well, what would I have liked our ownership story to be? Um, you know, the Leicester City story is a great story um, with the a Thai Chinese family that bought in early, brought them into the Premier League, had success with them, was committed to them. Um but that's that's kind of a one-off. It's not not exactly something. It, it's a one. It, it's as miraculous as the season they won the league. <clears throat> that that uh, the, the uh, that story, that miracle story, the the tragedy, everything that bonds that club and that ownership together is a one-off. So you you can't exactly put that up as your archetype of hey, let's make that happen. And we've had other owners come into the top league or two in England from Malaysia or Thailand or whatever, and it didn't end out up so beautifully. So you never can um, tell how something like that goes. But as you pointed out, uh, you know, Arsenal is a $2 billion club by, or £2 billion club even by valuation. Um, by definition, the owner is going to be one of those billionaires. And some people have a real issue with just the fact that the, owner is a billionaire, that Stan Kroenke is a billionaire. Well, you know, that's where we're at. You don't have a club worth $2 billion owned by a guy who's a philanthropist or uh, runs a nonprofit or only has a couple of hundred million to his name. It's uh, by definition, your club is owned by a billionaire of one flavor or another. I think uh, Tim's chomping to get in at the bit. <laughs> Yeah, Tim, the bit there. I mean, apart from benevolent super Arsenal fan with wealth that was uh, that that was acquired through perfectly honorable means, <laughs> straining my mind to think of how you could carve out the, the sort of archetypal um, likable owner. I mean, how how do you how do you build the perfect owner? Yeah, th so. Um... 
David Ornstein and Mark Chapman have been doing <clears throat> some really good podcasts in recent week, and they did a really good one last week on exactly this sub- subject, club ownership. And uh, I mean, first you've got right. We've got we've gone from a transition right from like the local businessman made good, like Jack Walker, and and this this always came with good owners and bad owners because you had like Clive will probably remember Robert Maxwell in the eighties who. And Irving Scholar yep. at Spurs and Alan Sugar and, and guys like that. But then you had Jack Walker, who was like the local man made good, who came and pumped his money into Blackburn just because he supported them and he didn't want any back. And, and, you know, there were good owners and bad owners under that model. Some were just like complete bastards and just wanted to make a quick buck and move teams off to the M25 and all of that. And you get all of that. And some were great. Um, so, but but what we've shifted from is we've shifted towards global owners, which, um, when you look at the way the Premier League gone, makes perfect sense. We had global players, global managers. What comes next? Global owners. But on, on the um, kind of building the the perfect owner, the the thing that came out from listening to that podcast that that hit me like a hit me like a stone because I never wanted to think like this before. They were saying that if you take out if you take away the not insignificant how Roman Abramovich made his money, as a club owner, he has been perfect for Chelsea. He's invested in the team, delivered loads of trophies, league titles, Champions Leagues. Um, he's like converted some of that cash into liquidity. He's made them much more sustainable. So if he ever walks away, you know, we used to joke about it, right? 10, 15 years ago, if he walks away, you're buggered. Not true anymore. He has set them up for even like beyond his own tenure. He's kind of, uh, it really sticks in my craw to say this, but it's detoxifying their brand. Um, now they're doing some really wonderful community stuff, um, some really good stuff around like addressing anti-Semitism and racism because Chelsea have always been toxic for those reasons because that's that's you know they've always had an element of that in their fan base and he's invested in the women's team he's invested in the academy if you take away what he did training before, ground <laughs> yeah 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 and he tried to get a new stadium as well and to be fair that that's not really his fault that it didn't happen because there is a super unique. Uh, situation with Stamford Bridge because it's not it's it's owned by like a, a third party who are not for sale under any circumstances so he would have delivered that as well willingly so if you just look at him on pure ownership merit he's been the perfect owner um and that's 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 quite a scary thought I think yeah, it pains me to hear you say it. Uh, hang on, Clyde, before you get in, let let, let Paul respond to that real okay. quick because then I want to get your full take on that as well. Paul? Yeah, just a very short point, which is, you know, Tim's talking about ignoring who it is. And I kind of feel the same with, with KSE. If you black box their ownership and, and how they behave, et cetera, is the way to look at these things uh, in each case. And, I, I you know... I have a re- I have real trouble giving credit to Chelsea and to Abramovich, but for the purposes of our conversations, you each time you've got to black box it and say, if I didn't know who the ownership was, and I think I think it helps with Arsenal and KSE too. I think they deserve a lot more credit than we typically give them, uh, even if I'm. You know, there are cri- criticisms you can make across the board. We'll if get you into just, the specifics of the of their yeah. their track record for sure. I think you just got to black box the ownership and say, 
all right, based on what happened since they took over the club, what do we think, etc. And and that's kind of how I approach yeah, this. And we'll get into their track record. That's obviously the the meat of the of the conversation. But Clive, I mean, you, you want to respond to those points and sort of the the what what an owner should be kind of ideology there. Yeah, I, I suppose there's lots of discussions around what owners should look like, how, how, what they should be, and I, I have a, I have a dream for what our board should look like. But, um, can, can I stop for, for a owner, second? What, why should? So I, I'm sorry, and I, I know you were just getting started, but you've said something that I, I absolutely want to latch onto because it comes up a lot and it needs to be addressed. Who cares about the board? Like, why? I, I keep hearing about the board, and maybe there's something that I don't get, but like. We have an individual owner. KSE owns the club completely outright, makes every decision they want. So, like, is there any reason the board matters at all? Like, why should we even bring up the board? Okay, you can substitute the word board for leadership or okay, executive fair, fair or any, anything you like. Because, because I would like to see people that care about different things on, on the board. And I would like to see a, a younger demographic. I would like to see... Uh, and maybe a female on the board. I would like to see something which represents the club that I that I care for. You know, so that's what I would like to see. So, in other I words, the voices were... that feed back to ownership being more representative yeah, exactly. of the club as I, a whole. I would, yeah, because we're a football club, right? So, I felt recently we've been much more, or maybe we still are, but we're much more an investment vehicle where football has taken a secondary place. And so, Tim's quite right to eulogise over Abramovich, although all of us. Absolutely, we're looking for everything to not say what he just said, right? But none of us disagree with it because you know, I will look for reasons why I don't like certain things that he's done, and I can find them, right? But if I really want to, but looking at it from thirty thousand feet, he's he has done a really good job for that club, and he continues to push them forward in a in, a, in now in a more sustainable way. You know, okay, we could sit there and say, well, you know what, Chelsea won trophies. I, you know, he has. If you look at the the accounts, he has put in over one point five billion pounds of his own money into that club, and still does it even up to last year. Put in, a, I think, around two hundred million into the year. So we're trying to compete with that, and it's very difficult. So when we're there slagging the manager for not playing this player in midfield, we know what they've got that player in midfield, and they've got that player because they're allowed to make mistakes because financially they've been they've been subsidised. So it's a real it's a real challenge. But what I would like, we, we talked about ownership and, and the board, what I would like is somebody on the board that can drive the ownership to care quicker about what's happening footballistically around the, around the league. I felt people are more concerned with their bottom line rather than looking at the football side of things. And, uh, and the reason why Arsenal fans look back David Dean with, with misty eyes because he was a representation of somebody that cared about the football. And that's why we look backward. And I would like to think, and I do agree with him, by the way, we we overplay that that card. But I would like to think there are people on the, on the executive right now that absolutely are pushing the ownership to care about the football. We have to respond to what's happening around us. We sat on our hands when Chelsea came came on on, on our shoulders. We laughed when Man City bought Rubinho. And look where they ended up. We, we, you know, will Spurs ever move into their ground? Well, they have, and now they're above us in the in the money rich table. And now we've got Newcastle coming. At some point, we have to wake up and start being what we are. And and that's why Elliot, the board's important because we need those dissenting voices. So, yeah, that was my point really. I just want to see um, 
a, a an ownership and an executive that represents our priorities. And I felt we had our priorities mm. through through maybe events had our priorities run over the last decade. No, that's a fair point. I mean, I guess if you look at the board as a group of people who are advisory uh, in nature and can communicate issues around the sporting side of the club back to ownership to express to ownership what the club needs to do to be competitive from a sporting standpoint, then I, I do see the value of that. But for it to have any value, the ownership has to care about the sporting performance of the club. And I do want to start to shift the conversation to whether that is in fact the case, whether that ever will be the case, and if that is sort of the central underlying problem with KSE as an owner. But Paul, I mean, do you want a quick, quick, quick comment on why the board might matter? Because I... I, I I see the advisory, the value of an advisory role for a group of people that have their eye on the prize vis-a-vis winning on the football pitch, but they are certainly figureheads in the sense that they don't have any, they don't have any authority to do anything. They don't, but they have the influence, and uh, it, it, it's a culture thing as well in terms of football. In that, English football clubs have traditionally had uh, boards. And there's a kind of a virtuous triangle between, in theory, the club, the board, and the fans. And the, the the board is kind of taking care of both halves of it. And you have a diversity of views and voices. And they're not employees of Stan Kroenke. So, yes, he has to pick people uh, he's comfortable with on the board. But he also has to pick a board that the fans won't give him grief over for uh, uh, not being able to provide perspectives um, and a view of the skin in the game for um, the the club for the fans. So they're, they're kind of that glue. And yes, in any big decision, Stan's going to make, uh, make the decision. But part of the mu- mood music, part of the, the heritage of a club, cl- part of the support of the fans. And when we think fans don't matter... Fans got rid of Unai Emery when the club didn't. When the, when the fans are aligned, they basically uh, have an equal say in what goes on in, in the club because no fans, no money, no revenue. Uh, and the board does play a role uh, in that. And if it's a weak board of yes men with no input, that feeds into the fan problem. So there's there's influence, there's pressure back in both directions. And I think it's a, a significant institution that can be very helpful. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I do think that we've seen instances of fan unrest influencing, if not outright determining club behavior. I mean, we certainly know Liverpool fans chased Hicks and Gillette, Hicks and Gillette away um, I don't think Newcastle fans had the impact on their club that they might have liked, um, although now they, they certainly seem to be relatively happy about what's happening, and that's a different debate for a different time. I, I do think we have to ask the question, for a club, for a, a sports club to be successful, does the person owning it have to care about the competitive success of the club? Tim, I would submit to you that Stan Kroenke does not care in the slightest. Well, I'll, I'll amend that momentarily about the sporting success of Arsenal. Provided that Arsenal mm-hmm. is not relegated, and provided that something doesn't happen that permanently impairs the asset value, I do not think Stan Kroenke runs Arsenal to be a successful team. That That, that is not his interest. He puts people in place to make decisions, and he hopes they'll make the best yep. decisions, and I certainly think he hopes Arsenal 
succeeds versus not succeeds, but I don't think he cares one way or the other, and I think that is borne out in his other sports holdings in the United States. He is on record having said, you don't get into owning sports teams to win titles, essentially. I mean, yeah, that, that's a paraphrase, but he is on record saying that. Um, to what extent do you think he cares at all? And I, I realize we're, we're ranging into speculation, but we'll, we'll tease this out a little bit. To what extent do you think he cares at all and has cared during his tenure owning the club about the success of the club? Has that changed at all in your mind with him taking full control? And does it matter? If a club has an economic model that is self-sustaining, we'll tease out what that means, and you have the right people in charge, does it matter if the owner cares about winning? So um, I'd say no, he doesn't care. He's he's a benign owner, basically, which means he's not going to sell us to tesco's and move us to the m20 he's not going to try and maxwell us um or mike ashley us or i like i don't think he will deliberately do harm to the club what you're seeing is a managed decline it's a drift we've seen understand Cronky. um and, and the reason for that and the reason that caring is important is um it i mean it's layered um, because when you care about something, you're more likely, and Clive alluded to this, you're more likely to like actively try and do something with it. So what we've seen is we've seen bad decisions um, and we've just allowed things to drift because the ownership are not really involved. They're not really invested. And, and that I think that's, you know, whether they care or not, like, like I think Stan cares about being in the Champions League because realistically it's it should be about our level and it's attainable without him, you know, without him like absolutely cleaning himself out. Um, and it's it's basically it's like the maximum return for the minimum input getting into the Champions League. So I think he cares about that from a financial aspect. I don't think he really cares about the sporting aspect of it. And and the reason caring is important is not so much because of the emotional side of it. Like, I don't actually think that Roman Abramovich cares about Chelsea. Um, you know, he, he, he didn't buy them because he's a big fan. We, we all know what it is. We all know why a lot of... Um, a lot of you know this type of owner is coming into the Premier League, and very pertinently with Newcastle, it's it's about reputation and sports washing okay. and all of that. Um, and so that that's a different type of caring. That's not because they care like in the way the fans do, but they care about success, you know, selfishly, effectively. But that motivates them to actually try to get things done. Um, and so that that's why the caring's important. It's it's not so yeah, it would be lovely if they were a fan and et cetera, et cetera. But then sometimes having that emotional connection can be a bad thing as well, as we saw at Leeds United with Pre- Peter Ridsdale. He got too involved in the emotional side of it and Leeds, you know, winning the Champions League and the Premier League and all of that. And we saw how that turned out. So there's a balance there. The thing is, no, Stan doesn't care. I don't think he's made an enormous effort um, to pretend that he does, which, which I, I wouldn't say respect. Um, but like, the, so the thing is, for example, the reason that Arsenal Arsenal fans and more more than I think any other set of fans in the Premier League yearn for communication and complain about the communication. Like I, th- I think Arsenal are like, well. They're the world champions of talking under KSC. They do Q and A events. Um, you know the the AGMs were when they existed were, 
you know, we really, really generated a lot of interest and not just for Arsenal fans. Like Arsenal as a club do a lot more talking than Manchester United and Chelsea and Spurs. Like no one's ever heard from Spurs owner, uh, Joe Lewis. He's never, like Abramovich has, I think, never given an interview to the British press and he's been here for 16 years. So like, Arsenal actually do communicate, but the the reason Arsenal fans want the communication is because they want to be told that what they're seeing isn't true. That's that's where the nub is. That's where why they want to be reassured that the owners do care because they can see that they don't basically. Mm. And that's why personally, I I don't really want to hear from them because I can see what's going on. I can see that it's a totally benign ownership. I can see that they're probably not going to take us into the championship and ruin us and fuck off, but they're not going to realistically build a team that, you know, tries to win the champions league and the premier league every year. They're, They're completely benign. And I don't, like personally i don't have a big desire to be lied to about how ambitious they are because i can see they're not they want to they i want think to that's tread a brilliant water. point tim yeah yeah, yeah they, they want to tread uh, water I, relative to where we were maybe yeah. not where we are uh, i always get really frustrated when people start ranting i mean i understand it but uh, uh, like the the it seems like a step above that is just recognizing it. there's a re you don't really want them to come out and talk to you in the depth you want them to talk to because they're going to have to lie. They've, they've kind of been honest in a sense. Yeah, like, I agree. They've told us, and to your point, we just don't like what they've told us. And you, as you said, you want them to come out and give you this great flowery speech. Well, um, or to say things that aren't too. true. Winning Winning. Put, let's set aside asset value for a minute. We could talk about asset value and, and the extent to which Stan has to win to protect that. But winning doesn't generate any money he cares about. If the club turns a 20 million pound loss or 20 million pound profit, that doesn't matter to KSE and to Stan Kroenke. It just doesn't. He's not running the club to try to eke out a profit every year. I mean, I know he took a 2 million pound consultancy fee or whatever a couple of years, but like that's three. three million. Fine. I mean, it, it's, irre- it's an irrelevance. It is an irrelevance. And we will get to the self-sustaining model because I have real questions slash issues slash confusion about what that actually means to anyone. But, but Clive, it sounded like you had a place you wanted to go. So rather than asking you a question, well, I'll just let you go there. Yeah, well, you just, you just almost, you touched on it, really. What the difference between Abramovich and and, and us is that we have a self-sustaining model and Chelsea don't. And so he doesn't have to talk because they can look at the balance sheet and they can, they can look on the grass and they can see, and he's talking as loud as clear. And what we're really saying is, we want you to talk. What we really want, we want a little bit of that. We want you to show us. They make cares, and we what we really want. We want your cash. You want we want your cash to fix some of the stupid things we've done regarding recruitment and contracts, and get us a better player. Let's be honest. That's that's what we really want. And well, yeah, everybody shut up when we bu- when we bought Pepe. I mean, remember it was we cared to you until we spent seventy million pounds on Pepe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and it was and basically that that's it. That's what most people think about if we're really really honest, right? So, and so yeah, that's where self sustainable. They've told us we are self-sustaining, so we have to be better with what we have. And it's quite interesting watching the behaviour since he's had single ownership. Now, there's rumours of a bit of support. There's rumours of um, underpinning some future transfers. There, there are there, but we no one can really crystallise this. 
but it's quite interesting. He's he's got sole ownership, and the first thing he's doing is looking at his cost base. That's what he's really trying to do. And I think if you look at some of the player sales we've had recently, and no doubt the player sales we had lined up until this market disappeared, it was all about cost base, player sales, reducing wages. You then you start to, and this is my thinking, then you start to invest with, um, once you understand what the club is financially and it's in a better place, that's a better position to really directly invest. That's been, that's been my thought process. Mm. And I discussed this with Tim Payton online and he just smashes me into the ground and said he will never put a penny in all the rest of it. But that's my little thinking. Why would he put money in while he didn't have full ownership, joint um, well, it was joint ownership, but now... He's got full ownership. Tidy up the balance sheet. Tidy up the wastage. Get rid of that crap, and then build upon there. And uh, and well, that's what it. I think is going to happen. You make a really important point that we should point out. You almost have to erase everything that happened before he was a complete owner. Because think about this for a second. You pump money into Arsenal. You enhance the asset value. What you're really doing is making it more expensive to buy Usmanov's shares so that you yep. can own them, right? So every t- anything he would have done to increase Arsenal's success during the shared ownership period would have made it harder for him or certainly more expensive for him. To, so, so think about it this way. Here's what's crazy. Let's say Arsenal made a 50 million pound profit every year that he owned it with Usmanov and, and won the Champions League every year. He would have more than lost it in what it would have cost him to buy Usmanov's shares on the back of that. So he, he had a really poor alignment of incentives. The incentives are now fully aligned and that may change things. Uh, you know, I think the Abramovich comparison is maybe inapposite. I think the one that is apposite is is FSG. And and it's impossible for me to have this conversation without discussing FSG because I do think that they are essential essentially essentially the same model. They are quote unquote um self-sustaining and we'll get into what that means momentarily. They are run in the sense that you have an owner who owns a lot of different or multiple sports organizations and puts people in charge of them and expects them to run it. But the slight difference is that at the top of FSG is a guy who keeps track, cares how they're doing, wants them to act intelligently, and that filters down. I really do think strong leadership at the top of any organization creates culture. And the culture at FSG, I still think, is driven by intelligent, data-oriented, win-first mentality within a self-sustaining model and a willingness to spend to some extent to get to it. And at KSE, I really think it is the mindset of a real estate owner, a guy who owns property, and property just, you invest in it, and you improve it to the extent that you can, and you watch it appreciate. Now, Paul, you do take issue with the idea that Stan doesn't have an incentive to win or desire to win. So why don't you respond to that, and then we can maybe steer that into what a self-sustaining model is, and, and if there is a better way to do it than what Stan has done. Yeah, look, it maybe it seems a bit nuanced, but I think there's a difference between, and I know you were just getting going, but the he doesn't care as long as we don't get relegated and the he absolutely wants to win at all costs. I, I think there's, there's some levels there. And I think you can clearly say that along the way, Stan has bought a top four club, a perennial top four, four club, and does not want his asset devalued. So... His definition of winning mightn't be yours, mightn't be um, uh, F- uh, Fenway's Fenway Group, John Henry's group of winning. Uh, he might not have all that money ball savvy, but he wants top four. Uh, I also, while I I see the Guzmanov 
argument that we only kind of invested till this point or Stan only had kind of had an, an incentive to to uh, support the club to this point, but but not to invest too heavily because uh, he might never get rid of Usman off if he did. Um, I think if you black box it from that issue too, we've spent money. Uh, we've spent money on star players since Ozil and onwards. Every couple of years, we get a big name. Um, our wages are high. We're paying out wages. We're paying top wages uh, for a club our size. I mean, if you just black box it, money is spent. If anything, we've overspent. You look at the Pepe deal. You look at some of the moves we made last summer when we all thought we just to balance the books, we'd have to sell some uh, and buy less exciting players than we bought. I mean, he's not behaving like a guy who doesn't want to get into the top four. I would say he's behaving entirely like an owner who wants to be in the top four. Um, and he needs that. I mean, he's put a lot of money into the whole L.A. Rams franchise and establishing them where they should be uh, in, in the hierarchy of the, the, the National Football League. And I think he's a very clear view of where Arsenal should be. He didn't buy the Manchester United of the Premier League. He bought the Arsenal of the Premier League. He wants that. He will want to return to that standing because there's Europe, there's the Super League, there's just, you know, his his assets a hell of a lot more valuable if we're a perennial top four club than if we're bouncing around sixth or seventh. Yeah, it's tough for me, right? Because I think the long game here might be waiting for a Super League, being in the Super League, seeing asset value skyrocket, and kind of treading water until then. I agree that nominally speaking, Paul, he he would like to be in the Champions League, and there's a lot of reasons why, um, and it is just greater insurance for asset value. But I think, you know, if you ask Dan, his attitude would probably be, I've got the right people in place, they'll guide us back to the Champions League, I'm not too concerned about it. I don't... I don't think he has a fanatical desire to win. I certainly don't think his other organizations are run particularly well. That's my take. I don't think the Rams are run well. Um, I think the Rams did some things that worked out okay and now have done some very, very, very stupid things subsequently. And ultimately, I just... Maybe it's as, as simple as a great owner in modern sports is a great talent identifier and appoints really good executives and then tasks them with winning and make sure they understand that winning is important. I, this, this gets a little harder to quantify. I mean, I guess Tim, let me bring you back into the conversation for a second. Do you want to respond mm. to, to Paul's sort of philosophy of, of the importance of winning to KSE and you know, whether, whether you sort of agree or diverge from that point? No, no, I, I agree with that. Actually, I was, I was going to uh, come on to where you're kind of moving. Well, first of all, actually, I, I kind of, I think you hit on something um, quite interesting there about FSG um, and about them kind of wanting to win. FSG and Liverpool have made plenty of mistakes. Tons, plenty. Yep. They've made bad management hires. They've made bad, you know, the whole Damien Comley thing and all of that. They've made bad director of football hires. Um, they've made bad stats hires. They've corrected them all quickly, though. Um, they and reacted, they find, yeah, so you don't let the rot yeah. set in. Exactly. Well exactly, said, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, they, so they've done that. And then, um, you know, you're talking about kind of hiring the right people, talent identification and all of that. And yes, we can say that Arsenal are trying to do that in the post-Venger world. And, and, and I've, 
you know, I've got, even if I don't think they've always made the right appointments and I've got some doubts about the people that are there now, I can see they're trying to do the right thing. But then we come on to the fact, uh, maybe I'm moving the conversation on here, um, is the fact that Josh is now prominently involved and really he's the one that maybe with a bit of a leash on him is kind of running the club now, which which could be viewed as a good thing in terms of, well, maybe he'll be a bit more enthusiastic than his old man and he'll have more time to devote to it. But he's he's not the best person for the job. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's it's he hasn't like landed that job because he's shit hot. And look, he's for most people his age, like if you were to select someone of his age, he is probably in the best position. There are not many people his age that have had this kind of exposure to running sports businesses. But in the wider world of executives, he's a baby. He's an absolute baby. And he has very little actual experience. And basically, Arsenal is like his sixth form college project. Like we're we're somewhat like we're we're like a college student's homework, you know. It's and, and that I think tells you where in you know within the kind of within Stan's portfolio how he sees Arsenal. He's kind of given it as a bit of a kind of a bit of a, a bit of a project for his son, so that his son can become more experienced. And and that's not a great position to be in when you look at it objectively, even if you can understand it from Stan Kroenke's point of view. And even if, like I said, you know, Josh does, you know, if you're looking for like a young executive um, in the long term, then, yeah, you know, he's he's probably quite well positioned for the long term because he's had this exposure and, you know, he's potentially, whether we like it or not, in with the club for the next kind of 30, 40 years if he wants to be. But as of right now, where we are right now, where we've declined and we've slipped and we're in, we're still in um, what we will view in history as the immediate post Wenger uh, era, which is, which is incredibly difficult. Um, And you look at Arsenal's history after the 1930s, they drifted, they drifted for a couple of decades um, it took them a long time. It takes clubs a long time, um, you know, to kind of to steer themselves through these kind of situations. And we've got a rookie kind of doing it um, as a bit as a bit of homework for daddy. Mm. That's not great. That's not great. It's it's good for Stan. It's good for KSE and all of that. But as as an Arsenal fan looking at it right now, even if you can understand the reasons that it's happening, we're in like a very tricky generational period in our history and we're basically being handled as as someone's homework and it's not the best person for the job necessarily it's the owner's son um which both means we have someone quite inexperienced uh, inexperienced at football as well um trying to kind of feel his way through this and you know the whole Unai Emery situation for example he didn't exactly stamp his fucking authority on that no. That was that was another situation, just like Wenger, that was allowed to drift. And any optimism you had that Josh Kroenke might be a bit different to Stan kind of evaporated by the whole Emery thing. Hasn't come out of that well. Um, and maybe it's because he was, you know, he's a bit young, he's a bit inexperienced, and he cowed to Sanyehi's self-interest and everything like that. But it doesn't bode very well for us. It might in the long term. You know, it's a bit like having a young player, I guess, Maybe he's got to cost you points in the, in the in the kind of short term for the long term gain. But to be honest, it doesn't feel great to me that um, that yeah that we're, that we're effectively 
a young man's project um, for daddy. And that's, you know, that doesn't fill me with a lot of confidence of us kind of navigating our way out of this situation. Yeah, well said. Well, Clive, uh, before I ramble on about that, do you have thoughts on what Tim's just said? Yeah, well, it's even worse. I think Josh spends a bit of time, with, more time with the Denver Nuggets, isn't he? That's his. Mm. That's his. That's his, his main project. Yep. Yep. So we're we're not even the main project. So a guy who doesn't really have any particular expertise that shows that he's suited for the job is not only doing the job, but doing the job as his second job. <laughs> but, yeah, but it comes back to expectations. It comes back to expectation management and what we see as ownership, board, leadership, right? So. We're used to certain things. They've, they've coded into us, right? And what they're thinking is, well, we've got Raul running the club and we've got Vinay running the commercial side of things. We've got, we've, got good, we've got a good academy guy. We've got a good young manager. We've got some new coaches coming through. What's the problem? Yeah, I'm, I'm underpinning all of the money that we're spending. I'm going to guarantee it. There's, there's, a, there's a fork in the road coming up, right? So the we care thing is, is really going to, it's, it's coming right now because what's happened with COVID is you have to care. You have to care now because you have to keep your asset afloat. And the self-sustainable model is no longer going to work because Arsenal, if this goes on for much longer into the next year or so, Arsenal cannot be self-sustaining given our reliance on, um, on gate receipts. So we are going to need some support. So the moment in time is here. The fork in the road is here. Stan, sustain your asset. How much do you care? Do you want to just keep us ticking over or not? And there was a line in um, in James's great piece last week in Athletic where I, I know someone came back on me and he said that Arsenal's in his portfolio. Arsenal's the only one that's taken a waste cut. And then you may say, well, due to the collective bargaining agreements, in the other, in the other port, parts of his portfolio, maybe Arsenal's the only one that can take a wage cut. But it did make me feel that's where he sees our problem. Our problem is in our cost base, and that's what he cares about the most, which goes back to our, our disconnection and our disconnection of expectations. We want our ownership to care about the football. They care more about the bottom line, and that is it. But there is a moment coming, and that moment is really close. If Arsenal are going to care, not just about the football, but the people that they're hiring careers, they need to invest now because there's an opportunity there if they were able to do so that may not be there once the market's are buoyant again. And it's going to be interesting to see how they react. And I don't expect it to be transparent, but that reaction is going to be proven, much like Chelsea have done, it's going to be proven in, in player hires, in board reorganisation, and I honestly feel that I think there'll be coaching changes as, as well. And I think this is to come once this season is actually over. And look, I, to be clear, you know, I don't expect an owner to deliver wins for us, right? I mean, I don't think any of us are sitting here saying owner bad because we're not winning. Um, you can win despite the owner and, and you can win because of the owner. But I do think that the more connected the owner is to what's happening at the at the granular level from a footballing standpoint, the more likely changes are to be made when they need to be. I mean, I, I think if I wanted to criticize Stan for anything, maybe the biggest point of criticism, which you guys have, have kind of alluded to, is just not being decisive enough to make changes 
when the trajectory is bad. And I think football clubs can be like ocean liners in the sense that you can't just turn them on a dime. When they're headed the wrong course, it could be two or three seasons to turn it around. If you build a bad squad, you're a couple seasons away from having a good squad at best. You know, and and we're seeing that. You can't just change a squad overnight. I mean, barring, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of investment that, you know, you can do with dodgy deals, I guess, but we were never going to do. So, you know, maybe letting Unai stay too long and letting the Gazidis and Arsene Wenger situation percolate longer than maybe it should have and maybe making the right or wrong appointment with Raul, your mileage may vary. Um, the the situation with Sven Mislintat, I mean, there are all kinds of things you can look at and say, would an owner who's invested in winning and cares about winning and is keeping a keen eye on what's happening at the club have let those things go on as long as they did, have let some of those decisions be made? You know, I'm not so sure. And, you know, I'm not talking about not spending money. You know, we had to sell players, self-sustaining model, whatever. You can be run in a fiscally conservative way, but still be run intelligently. And I certainly think when you look at the mistakes we've made in terms of the way we've sold, the way we've not sold, the way we've bought, like buying Aubameyang and Lacazette in consecutive windows was bad. Swapping Alexis for Mkhitaryan was bad. Not selling Ramsey was bad. Like you can go on and on and on and on. And like the fact is we were run poorly and there was no one at the top to stop it. And and that do, that buck does stop with Stan, and I do think the idea that Josh Kroenke cares more, while it may be true, certainly doesn't necessarily prove that he has the time, the bandwidth, and the expertise to be any better. Just because he can go to daddy and say, release the funds, I think it takes more than that to build a winner. So, Paul, where I really think we need to have a conversation, though, is also about what a self-sustaining model is, because I'm not sure we all necessarily agree. Um, I'm not going to put any words in your mouth, but I will say that I think that there are some people that characterize self-sustaining model as club can only spend what it makes. End of story. That's what self-sustaining is. Um, And we're going to set FFP aside for the moment for the sake of this argument, uh, just because we're discussing the ideology of ownership. Do you see it that way? I mean, do you see ownership having a responsibility to put money into the club to get the club positioned for success? Or are you perfectly happy with the club only having access to funds it raises by virtue of its footballing operations? Um, so I think uh, until this this particular time, um, I think the the tightest description of of uh, self sustaining I think was reasonable for us that we lived within our means, the revenues we generated. But when stuff uh, when when the boards kicked over and everything's changed, as with COVID nineteen, uh, but also with this Super League coming up, with new more and more oligarchs buying in, so that the top four, uh, there's now there could be six, seven, eight clubs funded well enough to threaten for the top four, then you need to expand your view of what's a a self-sustaining model to include investment uh, years where you invest up front because uh, with careful planning and projections you've worked out how you get paid back and I also think that uh, Stan's not beyond doing something like that in the sense that he's just put in a uh, basically several billion dollars <clears throat> Uh, and more, excuse me, by pulling in partners 
So that this L.A. move is the equivalent of $7 billion in total for that franchise because he sees the return on it. So from a business standpoint, uh, the bottom line definition of self-sustaining should be pays for itself at some stage in the future. I, I love um, that, by the way. I, I do love that yeah. you're headed there because I – and I'm only going to stop you for a moment, but I think – People fail to understand that any good business is not run where you just spend present cash to make present cash, but where yeah. you maybe spend, you may, maybe go into debt or maybe do what you have to do to raise, you know, the funds needed to invest in something that investment matures the, you know, increases the value of the total asset. Yeah. And can I say one other quick thing, which is the two exciting pieces of his sporting portfolio at the moment are the the Rams because he got to move them to LA and have now have one of the uh, crown jewels of the NFL and his Premier League football team based in London, uh, part of the most exciting uh, league in the most exciting and dynamic sport. I think it was him who said something about it being the wild wild west. But him and Josh, uh, uh, the one thing that gives me a little hope is the other stuff's kind of boring. Like his his basketball franchise, there's fuck all you can do. Uh, bar install a good general manager and refresh. The, there's not a lot you can do in the basketball world. You, you can tweak the dials a little bit, but it's not exciting. Now, if that's what you want, fine. If you want boring businesses, that's okay. But uh, I actually think they are pretty aggressive and ambitious Maybe not for winning trophies, but for expanding their – they, they want to be one of the top, uh, certainly American billionaire sporting organizations on the planet, and that's competitive. That's where they want to compete. They need a successful arsenal um, in the most dynamic and and uh, promising sports uh, uh, sport in the world. Um, they want to be players. They don't just want to own. Uh, some people think they want they're in it just for the profit or the this or the that on a kind of annualized basis. They don't give a rat's ass about the profit coming out of Arsenal as they've displayed. What they care about the, is the value of that club uh, and what the the sheen of uh, world football, world soccer in their terms, the Premier League, Arsenal as being another one of their crown jewels. And it's an exciting business. Uh, anything can happen, as we're now seeing in football. Um, and I suspect that's something they'll want a part of, will demand their attention, and they got to give it some more. I think what jo- I think it's great that Josh is involved. What he still needs to do is to go and hire a guy that he can work with, who he really trusts to bring the business forward, and that's what we're missing right now. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like what you said about about what self-sustaining means because i mean look you any good business will sometimes need to fund themselves with debt will need outside investment you know will spend beyond its means there's there's lots of good reasons to do those sorts of things if you look at fsg i believe fsg retired some debt that liverpool had when they took over there's isn't there a safe i'm gonna get into the weeds here and and i don't know this I, i believe there's a safe harbor where you're allowed to retire some debt when you take full ownership you can invest a certain amount of money and it it doesn't go against ffp or whatever the case may be stan could have done that uh paul's gotta go paul's on twitter pause my pants thanks pause Bye, guys. Have fun. Um, And so, you know, I mean, that's something that you certainly could do. FSG did that. They retired some debt. Um, 
you know, at the time they took over, he, he certainly could have uh, used his real estate background to, to personally guarantee some loans and change the debt, the, the debt that was associated with the stadium, re- refinance that in some way. He didn't. I mean, again, that was during a period of uh, partial ownership. And some of this is stuff that, that Matt and I covered, so we don't have to go into it in too great a detail. But I, I think that there are ways that you can invest in a sporting operation if success on the pitch is a primary concern that if success on the pitch isn't a primary concern, yeah, it becomes a little less urgent for you to do that. And I think through his unwillingness to do that, he's demonstrated that the urgency maybe isn't there. And I just, I cannot get away from the idea that winning, you can own a club to win and do it still within your means, but while being more positioned to pursue success on the pitch. And I, I didn't say that well, but I guess... We we can expand on that as as we wrap up here. I I would just say this, um, I don't need the owner to just go into the market and splash the cash, but if the owner doesn't care about winning and is slow to react to failure and slow to react to bad hires and lets people make bad decisions repeatedly because they their, their eye isn't on the prize, then that club is going to fail pretty much regardless of resources. And I do think that there's evidence that some of that has happened, and. You know, Tim, as as we wrap up here, you know, we talk about the self-sustaining model. That's all well and good. Um, but what does the future hold for Arsenal under Kroenke? I mean, can you see a scenario where in the existing landscape and as it is changing, that under his ownership, the model that he has put in place, however you want to define it, can yield the the kinds of successful outcomes that we would want as fans? Or do you think they are incompatible? Um, so I think like, and maybe this isn't given the level of competition, maybe this isn't open to anyone like, so I think kind of long-term success, you know, challenging for the league year after year. I I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I like, I wouldn't say I can't ever see us winning the premier league under KSE, uh, cause we've nearly done it a couple of times. Um, because that's the thing, right? You have seasons where sometimes you just get things right. Like luck plays or whatever you want to call it, plays a big part. Plays a, It plays a big part in your transfer business. And look, you need to put all of the frameworks around that to eliminate luck um, or whatever else you want to call it and momentum and all of this kind of intangible stuff as much as you can. But you still need that to fall for you. Um, as well and it can it can in in a see i i could see a season for example where you know there's another like 2015 16 except this time we don't fuck it up and we do just get over the line like leicester won the league four years ago and i know that's a massive massive outlier um and i'm not necessarily saying that 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 means that everything's okay but do you know what i mean like it it can happen. It can happen, but I, I wouldn't say that would be by virtue of the model, right? Like it, it would no, it would happen almost no. more by accident than intention, if that makes sense. Indeed, indeed. What 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 we're effectively kind of doing is treading water, and it probably uh, famous last words. It probably won't get an awful lot worse than this, right? Relatively speaking, but we might just have that season, like we nearly had a few years ago, where like things just fall for us and and we're strong enough to to go and win the league or something like that but um i i I absolutely can't see that on a sustained basis um i i see 
I still see Arsenal as part of, you know, the big six, the top six, whatever you want to call it. And I still think whoever and, you know, two teams are always going to miss out on the top four from that from that six every year. Um, I wonder if that will change. I wonder if there'll be more Champions League places up for grabs to stave off the Super League and whether the Premier League might just say, we got six clubs now that want Champions League football. Um, give us six places, otherwise we're going for the Super League. Um, but for the time being, there are always going to be two teams that miss out. So I, I think that within that that cycle, there will always be a couple of teams who are either in transition or at the end of a cycle and things don't quite work. Like I, I can see Spurs coming into that. Um, at the moment and maybe going through what Arsenal have been through the last few years and Liverpool have got Klopp leaving at some point coming and how they react to that and City have got Pep leaving at some point and how they react to that so like I can see us getting back into the top four in fact I think we will I'm not sure we will on a sustained basis I think that if those six clubs it will kind of rotate um, a fair bit and maybe Arsenal and Manchester United's time is coming um, and maybe there are a couple of teams in there who's who, who are, who are going to have to sit out for a couple of years but as to whether we'll be you know challenging for the league year after year no don't see it under KSE um, which is not to say I don't see it under the self-sustaining model like what you said about um, about Liverpool Chelsea are pretty much operating on a self-sustaining model now, um, albeit having been, you know, um, pumped to the eyeballs with cash in the 15 years that preceded that. But now they pretty much run, you know, they sold Eden Hazard last summer, um, you know, to bring some cash in and they've gone for like a youth project. Like that, that's not how they were behaving a decade ago. They are clearly going, they're kind of coming a bit more back towards what Arsenal are doing, I guess, but they're just doing it from a slightly higher platform and maybe with more competent people. But um, so, so I don't, I don't necessarily see like Arsenal staying in mid table forever um, or anything like that. I do think kind of eventually we'll get it right. And I do think they're trying to do the right thing with the kind of, it, it it's not, the structure they've put in place, I think, is the right one. It's just whether they've got the right individuals. And that might take some trial and error. And we might have to get get rid of a few people and hire a few people before we get it right, as Liverpool did. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that process, it needs a catalyst. And the catalyst is an engaged owner. And we don't have that. So it will probably happen a bit more slowly than, than it could or should. Yeah, and I mean, I do wonder sometimes if the other problem with the owner is that he's someone who maybe is easy to just kind of win over personally. Yeah, I, I don't, this is where I would get into speculation, you guys, but like, he's stuck with a really bad coach of the Rams for a long time, even extending his contract before it basically became clear that it was untenable. Um, he has stuck with people longer than he should at organizations when it is clear that they were not delivering. And I think that, you know, it could be a case that maybe Stan is a soft touch personally to some extent. You know, you say, how could he be as a billionaire? But like, maybe he is the kind of guy who develops a relationship, gets kind of spellbound with a Gazidis or a Wenger or a Raul or, a, you know, a whoever it is, an Unai Emery, whatever the case is. Not that anyone could be spellbound with Emery, but like, I, I think, and then just sticks with them. You know, doesn't find it palatable. Maybe he's got an internal some kind of internal ethics. I know you say, yeah, good luck with that. But you know, that says you, you don't fire people. You give them a chance. I don't know. The point is like, we have stuck with people longer than they deserved. And and there's another litmus test coming. I mean, what happens if we can't re-sign Saka 
and and we lose him. You know, God forbid. Does Raul have to pay for that with his job? You know, I, I would think so. I think it rises to that level. Will that happen? Probably not. I guess it's the point that, like, it's not just about the spending. It's about being decisive about making moves when the club fails to achieve its goals, whether the goals are, you know, commercial deals or contracts with players or winning on the pitch. So, Clive, for you, I mean, what is your sort of final conclusion about KSE's ownership? Is it a... Is it a millstone around our neck? Is it the kind of thing that will hold us back from winning? Or is it a situation where if Stan hires right, there's no conditions that would prevent us from being successful with this ownership? I think hiring is key. I I do think he trusts his hires maybe too much, as you alluded to. Um, I don't think there's the right accountability model. I also haven't been for a long, long time. I felt we were open to opportunities. You haven't said that before. Opportunities all over the club to forward their careers and forward their agendas. And I include our previous, our previous got one major in that. I felt, you know, everyone, when they get to a certain stage in life, starts to look inward and internalize on their careers and what they need from their job. And I thought there's too many people I also been there too long. And that's been proven in the last couple of years. The club's been ripped to shreds on from top to bottom on every single piece of staff. Almost everywhere there's been change of real influence. And and so the club is settling down again. So the guy's not he's not doing anything that he he's not doing anything out of character. He's a guy that doesn't want to talk. He's a guy that's invested in Arsenal. I read something that he was coming back from a, 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 play, a trip in Hong Kong and he looked at the papers and all he could see was Premier League, Premier League, Premier League. He thought, what is this all about? And that's when he started to get interested and that's how he ended up at Arsenal. That's where the first steps were made. He's somebody that positions himself to, to make money from a club and he hires people to keep his investments going. So the people that he sustained, or sorry, some of the people that stayed at the club made a bit too long. And some of the people that came in recently, like like Gazidis came and went, this has just slowed our progression down. But I don't want to end it on a negative. I will say, you know, in the last five years, I've I really feel positive about what's happening right now. And um I'm just very sad that we can't see it on the on the pitch and actually see those improvements. A lot of the things that I read and hear coming out of the club are just so much more positive and so much, much more like the club that I want them to be. And I'm not looking at the owner anymore. I'm looking at the coach. I'm looking at the manager. I'm looking at who he hires. And then I'm looking at the, the board and the connectivity of the club. I think the connectivity starts in the football, but I do think that's something that we really need to look at. So for me, I, I'm in a positive place, as anyone can be this period in our lives. I'm in a positive place where we could end up and I just hope we can get that momentum going again so we're not talking about Stan anymore you know I really want that to be the case and that's probably what he wants as well so I do think the hiring and the accountability of those hires needs to be stronger and I'm not sure if that person exists in the club it just seems to be a place where once you're in you're in for quite a long time and it's it's a, it's slowing our progress yeah and to be fair I mean if you want to be fair if it's just about money, if you just want to reduce it to money, I certainly don't see a lot of examples of of us being held back recently. You, I'm not going back, going back. There are plenty of examples, but like not buying what we needed in the sense that like we, we shelled out, some might say too much on Pepe. Look at the contract we handed Mesut Ozil. You know, look at the money we spent in consecutive windows on strikers in Lacazette and Aubameyang. The moves themselves were dumb. 
but the spending required to go do what the owner was being asked to do was there. So, I mean, if there is some encouragement here, I think it's when the leadership of the club have gone to the owner and asked for the checkbook to come out, the checkbooks come out. If there's an indictment of the owner, it's that maybe he shouldn't have. Maybe he should have gone back to them and said, why are you buying Aubameyang after buying Lacazette? Why'd you buy Lacazette if you want Aubameyang? Well, then sell Alexis. Why didn't you sell Alexis? Sell Ramsey. What are you doing? Where, you know, the, the, the fact that there was no accountability is the bigger issue than the spending, perhaps. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, and there may be nothing to it. I do think it's interesting that FSG owns a baseball team and KSE doesn't because it more closely resembles the football model where your downside risk isn't limited. There isn't a wage cap in baseball. There's luxury tax and things that kind of prevent unlimited spending or, or sort of discourage it and restrict it, and there's some revenue sharing. But, like... It's a little closer to football, whereas KSE has owned clubs that that are protected in the United States through these salary caps and stuff, and you can't, you know, and there's a draft, and you're not just going to spend unlimited money to get players, and so maybe FSG is just a little sharper at gaming a system where spending directly results in winning, because that is not the case in in football, basketball, and and hockey. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, man. I was going to say it's all about the people you hire. We 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 mocked Damien Camoli um, a little bit earlier, but it wasn't it Damien Camoli that hired the guy Edwards, who's now the chief football guy, the strategist, and the main statistics guy, and he got promoted internally. and And look what he's done with decision making. Now there was debate around some of their transfers, and it's fallen the right way. You just need to have good people. Recognize who the good people are. Hire them when they're not good. Get rid of them. That's simple well, as remember, that, and we need to work. It was John Henry, I believe, that wanted to hire Billy Bean and wound up going with a Billy Bean disciple that, that eventually got the Red Sox to win their, their title. I mean, having an owner that was clued into what was happening with data and analytics and being ahead of the curve, you know, that that's how you hire right, and that's how you win. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens there. I do want to say one thing as we say goodbye, you guys, which is just like, I do hear some false equivalency. There's a lot of false equivalency in, in our discourse these days, and this is... This is very sensitive ground. So I'm going to just say this with as much care and caution as I can. There is this sort of idea that if you're a billionaire, you're bad. If you're a billionaire, you're a human rights violator. If you're a billionaire, you've done terrible things to acquire that wealth. And that's all the same. I have some sympathy for that perspective. You know, that Walmart is a human rights violator in its own right. I think we should be careful when we just start to say that all people of a similar class are bad. And, you know, we look at maybe a group of people that execute people for being gay and, and conduct beheadings and stonings and someone who owns a business that maybe has unsavory practices and say those things are the same. I still do think that whatever is bad about Stan, and, and certainly there are things that we can discuss as it relates to capitalists and, and oligarchs and billionaires, that we should be careful of the false equivalencies where we where we just say all people of a of a certain economic capability are are equally bad. It's okay to still think some things are worse than others. And I think from an ethical standpoint, I still feel slightly on more safe ground, solid footing with with KSE than I would maybe some of the owners that are coming into the Premier League. And that's as delicately as I can put that. I'm gonna ask you to answer three three questions, Tim, with with just a percentage. The likelihood that you think KSE will own Arsenal within one year, five years, and ten years? A hundred percent. One year, 
uh say about 98 percent five years and i dropped that maybe to 90 percent in 10 years just in case like if they get if they get an absurd offer for example uh which could happen at any time i that that's the only scenario i see either an absurd offer or just something which might happen post-COVID, something dreadful happens to the game of football and it's just no longer profitable and they want to get out. But even then, they probably wouldn't make a profit. So I think we're in only if there's a ridiculous offer territory. Clive, one year, five years, 10 years? Yeah, I'd go, yeah, I'd go 100% one year. Um, five years, I'd go probably a bit less. I'd probably go 85% five years. And that's only because what's happening in the world right now. And I think the game is going to go through a massive change within five years. And there could be a reaction or an opportunity within that five-year period. And at 10 years, I'll probably keep it the same as almost five years, actually, 80%. Because I think, you know, again, that scenario is going to be there over the next decade. So, you know, football for me is going to change significantly and it's going to have to change how we consume it, and that's going to change the numbers, and that's going to probably force a reaction to either get not get some money in quickly, and or just make a change or sustain it. So I'm not too sure, but given what's happening in LA at the moment with the with the ground and the you know the fact the Olympics and all those sort of things that are, that are around, there's so many sort of variables. But I would definitely say under five years, I keep around eighty percent. I think something's going to happen. Mm. One year, I'd say probably 85%. I think the amount of money that is being hemorrhaged on the LA project right now is not to be overlooked. The changing mm-hmm. landscape for sports is not to be overlooked. The, the bleeding happening in his sports holdings is not to be overlooked. And if he feels he has to cauterize that by raising cash to sell one of the holdings, it would be Arsenal. Um, and if there was a buyer, I, I think you, you could maybe say the one-year possibility of selling could go up to... You know, he, he, even 30 or 40% that he might sell. But the issue is, in the current environment, will there be a buyer? I, I don't... I think he could sell in the next year. And that the thing that would hold that back is the absence of a buyer, not the absence of a willing seller. I think in five years, the likelihood that he still owns it is 50%. And in 10 years, 20%. Um, I don't think this business model suits him. I think that will become increasingly apparent. And I think with what he's doing in LA, that will just start to be the focus of his uh, of his holdings. So... Yeah, I don't think he's in it for the long term. But of course, some of that will depend on what the, the buying environment looks like. I think if Arsenal gets into a European Super League and that increases the asset value, I think at the point that that happens, Stan would look for an exit. That's just a guess because, um, as you may know, I I can't predict the future. So in any event, that should wrap it up. I think we're good. Um, I, I want to thank uh, Paul, obviously, who's already gone. Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to do a Patreon pod on The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, because it meant a lot to uh, a lot of us that do this pod, and so we're going to do that as a little diversion. Discord has introduced screen sharing and video and all this stuff, so we're going to do some video, live video conferencing type shows and screen sharing fun content stuff in the Discord for patrons coming up in the next week or two. So all of that to look forward to if you want to sign up for Patreon. It'd be hugely appreciated, and it is appreciated if you've done so already. If you don't want to or can't, which certainly I can understand right now. No problem at all. We'll have more of this stuff um, if this kind of thing blows your hair back. In any event, we love you. Hope you're hanging in there. Uh, Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 20, COVID-19.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.